Hi, welcome, welcome to Bookish. Bookish. This is a book analysis podcast on A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass. When you're done listening to these episodes, ask yourself this question. Did this podcast make me want to read these books myself? If the answer is yes, that's great. If it's no, that's great too. Now that the formalities are out of the way, let me introduce myself. My name is Kushi. And my name is Chrissy. Before we start, let's talk about how you first got into the series. At first I wasn't planning on reading it, but Kushi texted me in the middle of the night telling me how they were on sale. She didn't want to read the book at first, but I finally convinced her to. Well, I decided to read the back, and it seemed really interesting, and I thought I'd give it a try. To give you guys some context, I'm going to read the first chapter out loud. Chapter 1. The forest had become a labyrinth of snow and ice. I had been monitoring the parameters of the thicket for an hour, and my vantage point in the crook of a tree branch had turned useless. The gusting wind blew thick flurries to sweep away my tracks, but buried along them with any signs of potential quarry. Hunger had brought me farther from my home than I usually risked, but the wind, winter was a hard time. The animals had pulled in, going deeper into the woods than I could follow, leaving me off to pick off the stragglers one by one, praying that they'd last until spring. They hadn't. I wiped my numb fingers over my eyes, brushing away the flakes clinging to my lashes. Here there were no telltale trees stripped of bark to mark the deer's passing. They hadn't yet moved on. They would remain until the bark ran out, then travel north past the wolves' territory and perhaps into the fairy lands of Prithian. There were no mortals who would dare go, not unless they had a death wish. A shudder skittered down my spine at the thought, and I shoved it away, focusing on my surroundings on the task ahead. That was all I had left and all I could do, all I had been able to do for years, focusing on surviving the week, the day, the hour ahead. And now, with the snow, I'd be lucky to spot anything, especially from my position up in the tree, scarcely able to see 15 feet ahead. Stifling a groan as my stiff limbs protested at the movement, I unstrung my bow before easing off the tree. The icy snow crunched under my fraying boots and I ground my teeth. Low visibility, unnecessary noise. I was well on my way to yet another fruitless hunt. Only a few hours of daylight remained. If I didn't leave soon, I'd have to navigate my own way home in the dark, and the warnings of the town hunters still rang fresh in my mind. Giant wolves were on the prowl, and in numbers, not to mention whispers of strange folk spotted in the area, tall and eerie and deadly. Anything but fairies, the hunters had been besieged on our long-forgotten gods, and I had secretly prayed alongside them. In the eight years we'd been living in our village, two days' journey from the immortal border of Perthian, we'd been spared an attack. Though traveling peddlers sometimes brought stories of distant border towns often left in splinters and bones and ashes. These accounts, once rare enough to be dismissed by the village elders as hearsay, had in recent months become commonplace whisperings on every market day. I had risked so much in coming so far into the forest, but we'd finished our last loaf of bread yesterday and the remainder of our dried meat the day before. Still, I would have rather spent another night with a hungry belly than found myself satisfying the appetite of a wolf or a fairy not that there was much of me to feast on i turned gangly by this time of year and i could count a good number of my ribs moving as nimbly and quietly as i could between the trees i pushed a hand against my hollow and aching stomach i knew the expression that would be on my two elder sisters faces when i returned to our cottage empty-handed yet again after a few minutes of careful searching, I crouched in a cluster of snow-heavy brambles. Through the thorns, I had a half-decent view of the clearing and the small brook flowing through it. A few holes in the ice suggested it was still frequently used. Hopefully something would come by. Hopefully. I sighed in through my nose, digging the tip of my bow into the ground, and leaned my forehead against the crude curve of wood. We wouldn't last another week without food, and too many families had already started begging me for hope for handouts from the wealthier townsfolk.
I'd witnessed firsthand exactly how fair their cha charity went, and it wasn't very far. I eased into a more comfortable position and calmed my breathing, straining to listen to the forest over the wind. The snow fell and fell, dancing and curling like sparkling spindrifts, the white fresh and clean against the brown and gray of the world. And despite myself, despite my numb limbs, I quieted that relentless, vicious part of my mind to take in the snow-veiled woods. Once it had been second nature to savor the contrast of new grass against dark-tilled soil, or an amethyst brooch nestled in folds of emerald silk. Once I'd dreamed and breathed and thought in color and light and shape. Sometimes I would even indulge in envisioning a day where my sisters were married and it was only me and my father, with enough food to go around, enough money to buy some paint, and enough time to put those colors and shapes down on paper or canvas or the cottage walls. Not likely to happen anytime soon, perhaps ever. So I was left with moments like this, admiring the glint of pale white winter light on snow. I couldn't remember the last time I'd done it, bothered to notice anything lovely or interesting. Stolen hours in a decrepit barn with Isaac Hale didn't count. Those times were hungry and empty and sometimes cruel, but never lovely. The howling wind calmed into a soft sighing. The snow fell lazily now in big fat clumps that gathered along every nook and bump of trees. Mesmerizing the lethal gentle beauty of the snow. I'd soon to have returned to the muddy frozen roads of the village, to the cramped heat of our cottage. Some small fragmented part of me recoiled at the thought. Bushes rustled against the clearing. Drawing my bow was a matter of instinct. I peered through the thorns and my breath caught. Less than 30 paces away stood a small doe, not yet too scrawny from winter, but desperate enough to wrench bark from a tree in the clearing. A deer like that could feed my family for a week or more. My mouth watered. Quiet as the wind hissing through the dead leaves, I took aim. She continued tearing off strips of bark, chewing slowly, utterly unaware that her death waited yards away. I could dry half the meat and we could immediately eat the rest. Stews, pies, her skin could be sold, perhaps turned into clothing for one of us. I needed new boots, but Elaine needed a new cloak, and Nesta was prone to crave anything someone else possessed. My fingers trembled. So much food. Such salvation. I took a steadying breath, double-checking my aim, but there was a pair of golden eyes shining from the brush adjacent to mine. The forest went silent. The wind died. Even the snow paused. We mortals no longer kept gods to worship, but if I had known their lost names, I would have prayed to them. All of them. Concealed in the thicket, the wolf inched closer, its gaze set on the oblivious doe. He was enormous, the size of a pony, and though I'd been warned about their presence, my mouth turned bone dry. But worse than his size was his unnatural stealth. Even as he inched closer to the brush, he remained unheard, unspotted by the doe. No animal that massive could be so quiet. But if he was so, he, but if he was no ordinary animal, if he was of Prithian origin, if he was somehow a fairy, then being eaten was the least of my concern. Cons Maybe it would be a favor to the world, to my village, to myself, to kill him while I remained undetected. Putting an arrow through his eye would be no burden. But despite his size, he looked like a wolf and moved like a wolf. Animal, I reassured myself. Just an animal. I didn't let myself consider the alternative. Not when I needed my head clear, my breathing steady. I had a hunting knife and three arrows. The first two were ordinary arrows, simple and efficient, and likely no more than bee stings to a wolf that size. But the third arrow, the longest and heaviest one, I'd bought from a traveling summer when we'd had enough coppers for extra luxuries. An arrow carved from mountain ash, armed with an iron head. From songs sung to us as lullabies over our cradles, we all knew from infancy that fairies hated iron. But it was an ash wood that made their immortal, healing magic falter long enough for a human to make a killing blow. 
or so legend and rumor claimed. The only proof we had of the ashes' effectiveness was its sheer rarity. I'd seen drawings from the trees, but never one with my own eyes, not after the high fay had burned them all long ago. So very few remained, most of them small and sickly hidden by the nobility within high-walled groves. I'd spend weeks after my purchase debating whether that the overpriced bit of wood had been a waste of money or a faked, and for three years the ash arrow had sat unused in my quiver. I drew it, keeping my moments minimal, efficient, anything to avoid that monstrous wolf looking in my direction. The arrow was long and heavy enough to inflict damage, possibly kill him, if I aimed right. My chest became so tight it ached, and in that moment I realized my life boiled down to one question. Was the wolf alone? I gripped my bow and drew the string farther back. I was a decent shot, but I'd never face a wolf. I thought it made me lucky, even blessed, but now I didn't know where to hit or how fast they moved. I couldn't afford to miss, not when I had only one ash arrow, and if it was indeed a fairy's heart pounding under that fur, then good riddance. Good riddance after all their kind has done to us. I wouldn't risk this one later creeping into our village to slaughter and maim and torment. Let him die here and now. I'd be glad to end him. The wolf crept closer, and a twig snapped beneath one of his paws, each bigger than my hand. The doe went rigid. She glanced to either side, ears straining toward the gray sky. With the wolf's downwind position, she couldn't see or smell him. His head lowered, his massive silver body, so perfectly blended into the snow and shadows, sank onto his haunches. The doe was still staring in the wrong direction. I glanced from the doe to the wolf and back again. At least he was alone. At least I'd been spared that much. But the wolf scared the doe off. I was left with nothing but a starving, oversized wolf, possibly a fairy, looking for the next best meal, and if he killed her, destroying precious amount of hide and fat. If I judged wrongly, my life wasn't the only one that would be lost, but my life had been reduced to nothing but risks these past eight years, and I'd been hunting in the woods, and I'd pick correctly most of the time. Most of the time. The wolf shot from the brush in a flash of gray and white and black, his yellow fangs gleaming. He was even more gogachuan in the open, a marvel of vessel and speed and brute strength. The doe didn't stand a chance. I fired the ash arrow before he destroyed much else of her. The arrow found its mark in his side, and I could have sworn the ground itself shuddered. He barked in pain, releasing the doe's neck as his blood sprayed onto the snow, so ruby bright. He whirled at me, those yellow eyes, hackles raised. His low growl reverberated in the empty pit of my stomach as I surged to my feet snow churning around me, another arrow drawn. But the wolf merely looked at me, his maw stained with blood, my ash arrow protruding so vulgarly from his side. The snow began falling again. He looked, with a sort of awareness and surprise that made me fire the second arrow. Just in case, just in case that intelligence was of the immortal, wicked sort. He didn't try to dodge this arrow as it went clean through his wide yellow eye. He collapsed to the ground. Color and darkness whirled, eddying my vision, mixing with the snow. His legs were twitching as a low whine sliced through the wind. Impossible. He should be dead, not dying. The arrow was through his eye and almost goose-fletching. But wolf or fairy, it didn't matter. Not with that ash arrow buried in his side. He'd be dead soon enough. Still, my hands shook as I brushed off snow and edged closer, still keeping a good distance. Blood gushed from the wounds I'd given him, staining the snow crimson. He pawed at the ground, his breathing already slowing. Was he in much pain, or was his whimper just an attempt to shove death away? I wasn't sure I wanted to know. The snow swirled around us. I stared at him until the coat of charcoal and obsidian and ivory ceased rising and falling. Wolf. Definitely just a wolf, despite his size. The tightness in my chest eased, and I loosed a sigh, my breath clouding in front of me. At least the ash arrow had proved itself to be lethal, regardless of who or what took it down. 
At a rapid examination of the doe told me I could carry only one animal, and even that would be a struggle, but it was a shame to leave the wolf. Though it was a waste of precious minutes, minutes during which any predator could smell the fresh blood, I skinned him and cleaned the arrows as best as I could. If anything, it warmed my hands. I grabbed the bloody side of the pelt around the doe's dead wound before I hoisted her across the shoulders. It was several miles back to her cottage, and I didn't need a trail of blood leading every animal with fangs and claws straight to me. Grunting against the weight, I grasped the legs of the deer and spared a final glass at the gleaming carcass of the wolf. His remaining golden eye now stared at the snow-heavy sky, and for a moment I wished I had it in me to feel remorse for the dead thing. But this was the forest, and it was winter. And that was the end of the chapter. Um, and basically that was the shot that started it all. After she shot that wolf, if she finds out when she gets home that that wolf that she thought was a fairy was actually a fairy and it comes to her house in the form of a wolf or a beast is what she calls it and it threatens her it says you could either let me kill you right now or you could come to prithian which is the fairylands um you could come to prithian and you could live out your years there and she's confused she's like how am i gonna go over there and live i'm scared blah 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 and she just agrees her dad says never come back and her sisters are just real mean in general i don't like her sisters especially not nesta who's the oldest one pharaoh was just 14 when she first started to hunt and nesta and elaine which is the middle sister oh my god chrissy i was trying to record it was sorry about that she wanted to get ice cream um where was I? Okay, her older sister and her younger sister. Pharaoh was basically just a little kid when they let her go out and... <laughs> She's making more noise. When they let her go out and um, hunt by herself in the forest where people never let their kids go. So I just found that kind of selfish. Nesta, as it said in the book, she just wanted anything everyone else had, you know, when she was talking about how much the deer would um, get them, like money-wise. And, yeah, they're, they're just really both selfish. Elaine is kind of useless. She just likes to garden. And she didn't even... She, she didn't even garden vegetables. She gardens well, flowers. off track. But it, it's, it's just really stupid. I just don't like her sisters. They get better throughout the series. But, like, I just don't like her sisters. And, yeah, so the, so, the, so the fairy comes to her house. And he takes her to Prithian. And turns out that he lives in the spring court. That's all I'm going to say for now. I'm going to go eat ice cream now. Going off of what Kushi said, I think it's important to notice how the sisters act towards uh, Feyre. And there's this one specific part that I would like to mention. Um, it's page 19, and what happens is that Feyre gets home. This is before the fae comes to her house, the fairy. She gets home, and Nesta's being all entitled and stuff. And then Nesta lets slip that she's planning to marry this guy named Thomas that she met a few weeks ago. And Thomas is a rich guy in the neighborhood. And as you know, Farrah's family doesn't have a lot of money, no livestock, no anything. And Farrah lets her know that. She's like, we don't have any dowry to give him to get you guys married. And Nesta gets mad and she goes, we're in love. And Elaine, being the useless person she is, she just nods in agreement because she's like Nesta's pet, you know. <laughs> and Farrah goes, love won't feed a hungry belly. And then I'm just going to start reading off of there because it'll make more sense. 
As if I'd struck her, Nesta leaped from her seat on the bench. You're just jealous. I heard them saying how Isaac is going to marry some Greenfield village girl for some handsome dowry. Okay, pause. Um, Isaac is the guy she's been going to meet in a cabin. Fill in the blanks by yourself. Um, so had I. Isaac had ranted about it the last time we'd met. Jealous, I said slowly, digging down deep to bury my fury. We had nothing to offer them. No dowry, no livestock even. While Thomas might want to marry you, Nesta, you're a burden. What do you know, Nesta breathed? You're just a half-wild beast with the nerve to bark orders at all, all hours of day and night. Keep it up and... The fact that Nesta had the audacity to say that after Feyre basically provided for them while her father was crippled in a corner and Nesta and Elaine just sat at home doing nothing, Elaine being useless as usual, but um, it's just not fair, you know? Going off of what Kushi said before, I do think while they what they said was unfair, it'll be way more important when they get their own character development and their character arc. Talking, Going back to when the dad told her to never come back, I think that was a really important part of the story and it held more significance than it seems to. And I don't think he said that just to be mean. I think he told her to say it because she would have a better life in Perthian than at home since, as you can see, they don't really have much here to offer. After that, she ends up going to Prithian with Tamlin, who's the high fae that took her from her house. And a few weeks after that, she hears someone come through the front door. She goes downstairs, and it's Tamlin, and he brought in a fairy. And that fairy's about to die, and she stays with him until, her, until his very last breath. And when Tamlin asks her why, she says, because I wouldn't want to die alone. And I found that really surprising because she has nothing, no one to die with. None of her family liked her, and she wasn't respected at her house. So after that, Feyre develops Stockholm Syndrome, which, if you don't know what that is, it's when the kidnappy or a person who's gotten threatened falls in love with the kidnapper or the threatener. And <clears throat> Feyre falls in love with Tamlin, and after that, she she becomes obsessed. And Tamlin tells her not to come to Kalanmai, which is a magic occur magic making fire ritual that they have in the spring court and she stays in the house but in the middle of the night she hears a voice calling to her so she goes to Kalagmai and she gets cornered by these two men these fairies that she's never even seen in her whole entire life and and they they're, they're like making comments about her body and so she gets scared and then a man up comes up from behind her and he says thank you for finding her for me i've been looking for her for ages and that's an, that's important to remember because it is very pertinent to the story later on she she, she describes him as the most beautiful man she's ever seen it's kind of surprising because she likes tamlin you know so, just saying, that's pretty important. And his name is Ryzen, and he introduces himself. When Feyre had returned from Kalanmai, and Tamlin as well, he had cornered her, in which Feyre had said he had reeked of magic and was not acting like himself. He proceeded to bite her and say, don't ever disobey me again. That is horrible, because he basically marked her as his territory like a dog. And honestly, dogs don't serve to be compared to him because he's a horrible narcissistic person he treats her like how women were treated back in the day like in the 70s 
they were, they were treated as an object or property, and that's exactly how he treated her. He told her not to disobey him ever again, as if he owned her or something. And I think it shows his true self and what his true intentions were, because he did say he couldn't control himself um, in the text. So I think that just shows his true colors and what he really wanted out of her. Mm-hmm. I think the magic brought out his true self. A few weeks after that incident that I do not like at all, um, Tamlin and Flair are taking a walk, and she asks him why there's so many, like, monsters out in the forest and why he wants her to be saved, blah, blah, blah. And he explains to her that there is an illness in the lands and that that illness is taking control of a lot of people's magic, and that's why they had to do Cal and Mai so early this year. So that's pretty much it. So just remember, there's an illness in the land, and it's killing people. Going back to Ryzen, he makes an unwelcome visit to go see Tamlin and Feyre. Then he proceeds to ask Feyre's name, which she lies about. And so Feyre is surprised, because this is the man from Cal and Mai, who she thought was very beautiful, by the way. Um, and she told him that her name was Claire Better, not Feyre, because... She understood that he was a threat to Tamlin, which made her a threat made him a threat to her. And Tamlin told her not to trust anyone besides him because you can't trust anyone in Prithian when you're a human. It is also mentioned how Ryzen threatens Tamlin about a due date and how later on that becomes important. But also I think it adds to another reason as to why um, Pharaoh would lie about her real name. After that encounter, Tamlin decides that Pharaoh isn't needed in Prithian anymore and that he wants to send her home. Feyre isn't happy about it, but she listens to him because he's told her that she needs to be obedient. And after that, she meets her sisters the first time after going to Prithian, and they both see what's been, um, that she looks a little different. She has more color on her face. She looks happier. And Nesta asks her, what happened and she's like oh i went to an aunt's house across the border because that's what the excuse was that's what tamlin planted in their head so they wouldn't remember him coming into their house and telling them that he needed to t take her or that he'll kill her so he wanted to protect them so he told them that so that's all they remember but nesta being strong as she is i guess she past the glamour that he put on their minds, and she already knew that she was in Prithian. After she meets her sisters again, Nesta tells her that she needs to go back, she can't stay here, and after Feyre warns them about the plague in the lands, and that if they hear anything, that they should travel farther away from the border, because their house is like really close to the border, she tells them to travel farther away from the border if they hear anything suspicious. And she goes back, and when she enters the spring court, everything's broken. It's messed up. The whole mansion's broken. It's basically rub rubble now. And she goes looking for Tamlin. She can't find Tamlin, and she wonders what happened. And so she's sitting in the kitchen, confused and almost in tears. And guess who enters the door? Alice, her maid, that she was really connected to. And Alice tells her what the plague really is. And it turns out that the plague was just a woman named Amarantha who was in love with Tamlin for about a hundred years. Fairies are old, just saying. She was in love with Tamlin for a million, like a hundred years. And 
when Tamlin found that out, he didn't like her, so he rejected her, and she got mad about that, so she gave him 50 years to decide, and after that, he said no, so she came into Prithian and tricked all the High Lords, telling them that she's a good person, and then she gives him another 50 years after putting a curse on his court to find a girl who will kill a fairy and has hatred in her heart for fairies and make her fall in love with him. So Pharaoh is all part of this game, and she realizes that, but she doesn't have a problem with that, which I found pretty weird, you know. And after Alice tells her this, she's like, I have to go save him, because currently Tamlin was under the mountain, which is a uh, territory in Prithian, and you can refer to the map for that. And she, Alice takes her there, tells her that she'll take her to a tunnel that'll lead her all the way to under the mountain. It's a magic place, so magic tunnels. And when she gets there, she goes straight through the tunnel and I I was kind of surprised you know this guy has kicked her out of his kingdom I mean I guess it was to protect her but it still wasn't fair and he basically used her for his own good and I I was I was just kind of suspicious like does he actually love her or not continuing on from that she sees all these evil fairies when she enters the uh, um under the mountain and She's looking through this little crook in the in the wall, and she doesn't realize that someone's watching her. And someone grabs her from behind, and, and it's the adder, which is a basically blood-hungry monster that lives in Prithian. And this whole Prithian is under the rule of Amarantha, so it just listens to what she says. And it brings Feyre in front of the whole crowd, which is full of high lords from all of Prithian, who've gotten tricked into being slaves under the mountain, and all these blood-hungry fairies that are not the good kind. And <laughs> Amarantha sees her, and she's like, oh, who's this? And Reese freezes up, Reese being Ryzend, he freezes up, and he's like, oh, I have no idea who this is, and that's important, because why would he lie, you know? I thought he was a bad guy. And Amarantha goes, oh, this is the girl that you were with, wasn't it, Ryzen? He's like, I don't know, all humans look the same to me. And Feyre's like, why is this guy helping me right now? And then she looks over, and the person sitting next to Amarantha is Tamlin. And her whole mission revolved around the fact that, oh, I love Tamlin, I gotta save him from this girl that wants him to. And Tamlin doesn't do anything. He just sits there, blank-faced, doesn't move, doesn't even look at her. And Amarantha goes, oh, look behind you. And Farrah looks behind her, and it's Claire Better. And Claire Better, for reference, is a girl from her old neighborhood in the Human Lands that was pretty nice to her despite their like wealth problems and she realizes that she just killed her it was her fault that she's dead right now and then Amarantha goes you know what you want your tam tam back (laughs) you have to complete three trials and the first trial uh uh finds out later is that she has to defeat the men and guard worm And before that, they just stick her in a dungeon. She sits there, lonely, waiting for someone to come and get her. She has no idea when the trial's going to come up. She gets food, like, once a day, which is basically just bread and mashed potatoes. It's a then in the book. Kind of sad. And so the first trial comes up, and 
fair is scared. She she gets dumped in this giant arena that's full of blood and smells horrible, probably because it's the Midgard Worm's horn. Uh, wor- um, home. Home. I meant home. And Amarantha goes three, two, one, go. And the trial starts, and she's just waiting there for something to happen. And then this giant white thing just starts <laughs> swimming towards her. Not swimming, but like, I don't know, slithering. Slithering towards her. And she's scared, but she fights her way through it. And in the end, she figures out a way to defeat it. And she realizes that the Midgard worm is blind and relies on smell. So she covers herself in the nasty mud so it won't be able to smell her. And she kills him. And Amarantha goes, oh, okay, did you know that all these people placed a bet on you? And she's like, what? And she's like, every single person in this arena right now has placed a bet, whether you would lose or win. And the only person who bet that you would win was Ryzend. So when Feyre gets back to her cell, Rising proposes to make a deal. His deal was that he would heal her and help her with the trials if she spends every week of a month in his court, and to go to the night parties that Amarantha held every night. And another thing I want to talk about is how Tamlin Lily did nothing to save her throughout the whole Under the Mountain experience, because... He had all these chances to go up to her and talk to her, but he just sat there on a, on a chair, blank-faced and not moving, because it was either that he was scared about was scared um, of Amarantha, or he probably just didn't want to risk anything, his life or her life, who knows. And, and then the one person that did help her was Reese, and during one of the night parties that Reese took her to after the deal... Tamlin uh, got one chance to take her somewhere or give her tips about how to overcome the trials. He just used that time to push her up against a wall and kiss her. And I just found that really annoying. And then Reese comes into the hallway where he's basically mauling Farah and says, you need to go, Amarantha's calling you. And then Amarantha comes trying to find, comes, comes over to that hallway trying to find Tamlin and Tamlin has to hide, and Reese just starts making out the Pharaoh to make it look like it was him doing all that, and it wasn't Tamlin because he was trying to save both their lives, okay? And Amarantha bought it, but she was really mad. The way Pharaoh described her face, you could tell. And then after that, the third trial comes along, and when Pharaoh gets pulled into the arena that day, there's three people knelt down on the ground with bags over their faces, like potato sack bags. And Amarantha goes, okay, your third trial is to kill all these people, or you could try to solve a riddle that I give you. And the riddle is, there are those who seek me a lifetime, but never we meet, and those I kiss who trample me beneath ungrateful feet. And that's the riddle, and Fair has to solve that, or she could go through with the third trial. And so she realizes that the third trial is that she has to stab every single one of those three people. And she looks at Tamlin, but Tamlin doesn't look at her, and he just ignores her the whole time. And she does it. She kills the first person. And the first person was a little boy who had the same blue eyes as Tamlin. And that's the way she described it, not me. I would not describe it like that because I don't like Tamlin, but 
that's the way she described it. And the second person was a middle-aged woman who started praying underneath her breath and just told Farah to go through with it because she wanted to save everyone's life. Because if Farah went through with that, every single person in that arena and and every single person who was under the rule of Amarantha would be set free. That was the deal. She completes the trials and everyone gets set free. And so while she's doing this, she's freaking out. She's sad. She's she's just messed up in the head now because she had to go against every single one of her morals. And so the third person comes along and when they take the bag off of his head, it's Tamlin. And so she's confused. She's like, I thought he was sitting on the bench a few minutes ago. And she turns around and it was the adder in disguise, the adder, the bloodthirsty monster that we introduced when she first walked into Under the Mountain. And the otter smirks at her and says, you really thought, huh? And so she turns around and Tamlin goes, you can do this. And she is trying to go through all these things in her head. She's like, why is he telling me to just do it? Right? I came here for him. And then she realizes that in the original story of the Beauty and the Beast, the Beast had a stone cold heart. And she puts two and two together, and she realizes that Tamlin had a stone heart. And so she stabs him, he doesn't die. And Amarantha's like, oh, I guess you figured it out. Joke's on you, you still have to solve the riddle. And so Feyre's trying and trying to solve the riddle. And Amarantha goes, if you can't do it, then I'm just going to have to kill you. And so Amarantha starts playing her game. She starts hitting Feyre, beating Feyre. And Feyre, while all that's happening, she's trying to think of what the answer to the riddle would be. And her last words are, the answer to the riddle, it's love. It's love. And she's right. And Amarantha freezes and then stabs her. So Feyre's dead. And... Tamlin's just sitting there, frozen, and then Reese goes, Feyre, no, and he grabs a knife, and he tries to stab Amarantha, and Amarantha's, and, like, he misses Amarantha, and she slides away, and then she starts using the powers that she stole from all the high lords, that's how she got them all under her control, she uses the power that she stole from all the high lords to basically use magic to rope him to the ground and Reese can't do anything Tamlin's just sitting there frozen and then all the high lords gang up on her and then she dies they kill Amarantha but Feyre basically is in is on the pathway to the afterlife and then she can see everyone through this little green thread in her mind gold sorry gold thread in her mind and she could see something through someone else's eyes and she realizes it's Reese's eyes he's using his powers to show her what's happening and she sees that all the high lords are using their powers to bring her back to life and when she comes back to life guess what happens she's high fey because they gave her some of their powers and then Amaranth is dead everyone goes back to their own kingdoms courts whatever you want to call it and they live happily ever after until the second book now that we've pretty much summarized the whole first book to the series let's talk about how other people feel about this book while scrolling through the internet i came across this blog called young adult literature by tiffany and she mentioned a really good point that i thought should be more talked about reading from tiff's blog she says first is a slow burn romance between tamlin and Feyre. 
Tamlin plays the Beast in this retelling and Feyre the Bell, so there's already a bit of an instance of Stockholm Syndrome and the imbalance between them. But this scene from chapter 21 where Tamlin is drunk on magic goes a bit too far. So most of the stuff she talks about I have to agree with because we've already mentioned this before, how she developed Stockholm Syndrome and there's an imbalance between them. And there's many scenes that show this, for example, chapter 21 where she mentioned this. While we keep mentioning Tamlin's abusive behavior, we haven't really spoken on Ryzen's, which I think is quite important because he blackmails Feyre and exchanges Feyre's health for ownership of her for one week out of each month. Ryzen also uses his power to get into her head to force her to drink bad fairy wine, which makes her memory very hazy and she wakes up the next morning with no memory of what happened. In conclusion, I feel like this goes to show how Feyre was truly on her own and no one was really there to be the hero for her or save her, and she definitely had to rely on herself for that. Yeah, Feyre was the real hero. That's, That's the, the end, end of the first, first episode. episode. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Bye! Bye.